Welcome to KUOW's Speakers Forum. I'm your host, John O'Brien. In this episode, the second annual Women's March was celebrated in Seattle on January 20th. Organizers say as many as 100,000 people attended. But those organizers had more in mind than a one-day march. They want to make a change. Over the weekend, they held events at hubs around the area, including this panel discussion, Women Power Seattle, a conversation focused on the intersections of race and gender. Progress Alliance of Washington Program Director Kirsten Harris-Talley served as moderator. The panelists included Seattle Mayor Jenny Durkin, Seattle City Council members Teresa Mosqueda and Lorena Gonzalez, Got Green Young Leaders Organizer Mo, Social Justice Fund Executive Director Mijo Lee, Chief Seattle Club Executive Director Colleen Echohawk, and Washington State Senator Rebecca Saldana. This Women Power Seattle panel took place at Seattle City Hall on January 21st. Here, Kirsten Harris-Talley introduces the panel. I um, have the pleasure of introducing this esteemed panel so I'm going to go through all um, everyone's bios, and then we'll open up with a question for reflection. So I'm first going to introduce Colleen Echohart. Um, Colleen is with Pawnee, an Athabascan tribe, and is the executive director of Chief Seattle Club, a nonprofit dedicated to the needs of Native American and Alaska Native people who are experiencing homelessness in Seattle. Chief Seattle Club provides a safe and secure place to rest, revive, and nurture the spirit of urban Native people. As the founder of the Coalition to End Urban Native Homelessness, Ms. Echohawk is committed to homeless active advocacy and the belief that all people deserve housing, security, and unrelenting acceptance. Join me in welcoming Colleen. We also have with us Mayor Jenny Durkin. Jenny Durkin is the 56th mayor of Seattle and the first woman to lead the city in nearly a century. She entered office on November 28, 2017 with the challenge of making Seattle affordable and inclusive for all. She is focused on the housing affordability crisis and helping those experiencing homelessness, creating economic opportunity for all and providing free college tuition to Seattle's high school graduates while also driving an essential in city services. Mayor Durkin is one of eight children and was raised here in Seattle, and she and her partner Dana have two sons. Join me in welcoming Mayor Durkin. Also with us is Mijo Lee. Mijo Lee is the Executive Director of Social Justice Fund Northwest, a community foundation that funds grassroots movements of social justice through an innovative model of training everyday volunteers as fundraisers and leaders, grounded in an analysis of race and class. Except for four years in New York, she has been a lifetime Northwesterner. Before coming to Social Justice Fund, also known as SJF affectionately, she was a public defender on statewide appeals and has a background in organizing in a variety of movements, including fair trade, police accountability, and immigrant rights. Mijo lives in South Seattle with her teenage son and loves superhero movies, karaoke, and pie. <laughs> Join me in welcoming Mijo. We also have with us council member Lorena Gonzalez, who's currently serving as one of two at-large citywide representatives in the Seattle City Council. 
Prior to joining the council, Councilman Gonzalez had a decade's worth of experience as a civil rights attorney and community advocate. Councilmember Gonzalez was born and raised in Washington's lower Yakima Valley, where she earned her first paycheck at the age of eight, alongside her parents and five siblings. Please join me in welcoming Lorena Gonzalez. Also with us is Mo. Mo is a youth organizer, started her social justice journey at the age of 12, volunteering with an advocacy organization that worked on issues of reproductive justice. Mo has been engaged in community organizing and activism for over 20 years, and she believes in the power of prioritizing social justice work and improving relationship skills to create a more equitable world. Please welcome Mo. And Council Member Teresa Mosqueda, our, our newest, brightest <laughs> city council member is also with us. Teresa Mosqueda is a third generation Mexican American and comes to Seattle City Council following a long career effectively advocating for working families. Her calling for public service began as a child where she learned firsthand what it means to stand up for the most vulnerable and to fight for transformational change alongside her parents. Join Council Member Teresa Mosqueda. And also with us is State Senator Rebecca Saldana. Rebecca Saldana is serving her second term in the State Senate after being elected this last November of 2017. She grew up in the Del Ridge neighborhood of Seattle and has lived and worked primarily in Seattle and Oregon. Rebecca is on the Senate Democratic Leadership Team, serves as caucus whip, and sits on the Transportation Committee and the Labor and Commerce Committee. She holds a Bachelor of Arts in Theology and Humanities from the C Seattle University and lives in Rainier Beach Skyway with her husband and two young children. Please join Senate Senator Rebecca Saldana. So I'm gonna actually start the panel with a shared question and then I'm gonna drill down to some individual questions for each of you, really on this theme of a reflection of women and power in the intersection of our identities at the intersection of power and power building. So I wanna start and um, if it's okay, Mayor Durkin, maybe I'll start at your end and we'll just go down the line for this first question. Um, and I really just wanna open up a question because power is one of those words I think we all use and we assume we all mean the same thing, and I don't know that any of us actually mean the same thing. So I wondered if each of you could give a one-minute reflection on what you think of and mean when you think of power. Thank you very much, and thanks, and it's such an honor to be here, and I wanna thank the Duwamish for giving us the blessing and all recognize that we are on Duwamish lands. I think power has to be redefined, and I think power to this day has been defined by those who think that they're in power, and their power exists because they have disabled others. I think it's really important for everyone to know that power and leadership, everybody is born with power. And particularly for the young girls who are here, if you look over the history, that really if you look at any oppressive regime, it stands in place trying to convince people and set up systems to remove that individual power from people because the most dangerous thing to despots and to tyrannical people is when those people join together and have collective power like we saw yesterday. When you see thousands and thousands of people coming together, they are exercising individually their power and their leadership. 
And so I've taught a lot in, over the years, and I've talked to people saying leadership is not something that someone acquires because they get elected to our office, so they rise through the ranks, so they become uh, you know, the top of their field. You are born with power, and you are born a leader. Everything you do is an exercise of leadership and power and how you sit with people and how you are centered. And so I think the important thing to remember is each of us is born with innate power, and it is the ability to exercise that power individually, which we must strive for, and the ability to come together collectively to change our world. So I think that for me, power is something that is not external to anyone, it is internal, and the most powerful of peoples are those who come together and exercise those individual powers for the collective, for the benefit of all. Wonderful, thank you. Councilmember um, Mosqueda. Wonderful. Well, thank you for having me, and thank you all for being here today. Um, I want to start with a definition of power from Martin Luther King Jr. He said, power without love is reckless and abusive, and love without power is sentimental and anemic. Power at its best is love implementing the demands of justice, and justice at its best is power correcting everything that stands against love. I would also add to this that power at its best and power that demands change must also be shared. And in the last years, especially in the last few months of Martin Luther King's life, what doesn't get talked about as much is his demand for shared power, his demand for shared economic justice. And while the Poor People's Campaign that he helped to lead, especially in the last few months of his life, was really calling for not just uh, civil disobedience, but was calling to stand up against wars against aggression, wars of aggression, standing up against injustice, standing up against economic uh, inequality. What he was calling for is for us to have greater shared power, both in the halls of city hall and county councils and um, the state legislature and in DC, but also shared power that is reflective of the community that we intend to serve and lift up. And that's why I think this panel is so impressive, because what you see here is not just folks who've been elected into the halls of power, but people who are demanding change, who are using their power, who are calling from the community um, to set the terms and conditions under which policy must change. And so that is why I think that when we think about power, we think about more folks who have that lived experience, whether they're leaders within the community or individuals that have been elected. And by the way, we need more of you all up here too in elected positions. Um, and we will continue to fight to make sure that our democracy is truly a representative democracy. But I think shared power and shared economic justice must recognize the intersectionality that when we stand up and fight for economic justice, we are also standing up for racial justice and gender justice. And as a woman, uh, in a time when women's rights are under attack, as a renter in a time where we have skyrocketing costs of housing, as a union activist at a time when workers' rights are fundamentally under attack, and as a um, third-generation Mexican-American Chicana, when immigrants and immigrant families are being ripped apart, I think what we're coming together today is to show our shared power and how we will fight for true justice together. What about Mo, you, Mo? What's yeah. power mean? Um, so I first wanted to thank everybody who's here today, everybody who organized and to be up on this panel with these, all of these amazing women. I'm very excited. So for me, the idea of power is very much an idea that echoes the reproductive rights movement's call that the personal is political. 
As such, the people who have helped me find words for what I think of as the very political idea of power have been people who are in the profession of dealing with our personal lives, therapists. In my time working with my therapist, I've learned that power is really about staying open. Most specifically, it's about spending the time identifying my needs, being grounded in them, and then accepting others' input, help, and influence in relation to my needs. And accepting that influence will sometimes, if not often, change how my needs are met. What a task when with all the voices internalized, of internalized impression and superiority talking, to be able to turn around and say that I have my needs fulfilled, you got your needs fulfilled, and we navigated each other's differences to do that. I can't think of a more powerful act. Thank you. Mijo? Thank you. Thank you also to everyone who's here, including the fellow panelists. Um, you've all so eloquently um, talked about many of the things that I was gonna talk about, including the MLK quote, which I love. Um, so instead, I think I wanna talk about um, how we exercise, you know, rather than what it is, what we do with it, how do we exercise it. Um, this idea of power over versus power to, power over being something that um, subjugates, something that is hierarchical, is something that uh, we're all very familiar with, we've all experienced and seen throughout our entire lives. This idea of power to, which, all three of you have already talked about uh, this idea of collective power, this idea of power for a purpose that benefits all and that brings all of us, all of our strengths together to be more than we could on our own. That's something that we've seen only fleetingly um, for many of us in our lives. And that means that figuring out how to build it and how to exercise it is actually really, really hard. And I say that just to say um, it's important to remember how difficult it is so that we can be um, gentle with ourselves and each other um, and loving with ourselves and each other as we try and stumble and make mistakes and get up and try again. Um, and at the same time, to have very high expectations for ourselves and each other because that is what this world and this struggle requires of us, right? So it's this delicate balance of um, loving accountability of saying we recognize that we're going to make mistakes and we're going to have to learn from those mistakes and we expect ourselves to learn from those mistakes and do better. Um, the other thing that, that I would add about the, the implementation of this of, of power two um, is a quote from Asada Shakur um, which is very famous. It, it, um, it is our duty to fight, it is our duty to win, we have nothing to lose but our chains. Mm -hmm. And I think that sometimes we forget that middle part, it is our duty to win. Um, so when we talk about what it means to build and create and learn how to use this power, what is it for? It is to win. We have to be strategic. We have to be in it for the long haul. We have to feel urgency and patience at the same time. Um, and we have to be really, we have to aim high. We have to be clear. We're not here to just um, play defense, right? We are here to win. That's what this power is for. Thank you. Councilmember Gonzalez. These are all tough acts to follow. Good morning. Um, uh, so I feel like mostly everything has been said and the danger of being towards the end of the table on a panel at a first question is that you start repeating yourself, which I know you all really love. Um, so I'm going to try to avoid repetition. I, I think, I think a lot, of, I agree with, with, with a lot of what has already been said. And, um, I mean, for me, when I think about, um, power, I instantaneously go back to my own lived experiences of not ever having it and 
what that feels like. And so when I am doing my work, I, I try really hard to root myself in what it felt like to um, not be in a position to be able to change any of my um, life experiences or any outcomes for myself and how disempowering and disheartening that feels. And I think it's important for people in positions of power, whether you are at a nonprofit, whether you are an organizer of a grassroots movement, or whether you're the mayor of the city of Seattle, to remember what that feels like. And if you don't know what it feels like, then you are very privileged in your life to have not ever felt that feeling. But for me, that meant um, you know, watching migrant farm workers get beaten in the field because they knocked too many leaves off of cherry trees. For me, it meant not getting paid wages and not knowing whether that meant we were gonna be able to eat that month or that week. Um, uh, it meant you know, having to rely on using my siblings' clothes and shoes and hoping nobody noticed exactly how poor I was. Um, and that is in stark contrast to the woman you see sitting in front of you today. Um, and it's because of the fact that my parents every day, day in and day out, seized those small moments of power that all of us have in our life every single day. And I think that when we talk about power, we forget that there are these small, tiny, just miniature moments of capturing your power, whatever it is that power it is for you today. And I think we forget that those small moments can really come together and create some really significant change for our families, for our, uh, however it is we define them, for our community and, and for the broader area, and sort of collectively bringing those moments together to these types of positions, um, I think is what really reminds us why it is at the end of the day we do our work. Um, and I think that's an important thing to remember because sometimes people can get drunk with power and you forget why it is you got into this position in the first place. You forget why it is you ran a campaign and you know ate hard-boiled eggs for six weeks. <laughs> Real fact. Um, because it's the only thing you can figure out how to cook quickly enough to get back out there and, and, do, and, and, and convince people to vote for you. But you don't do that just because you want to win. Um, you do it because there's a higher purpose calling to you. There's a reason why you have to be in this space. Um, and, and it's important for us to remind ourselves emotionally, what is that space? And, and why are we continuing to be in the space to want to fight for justice? Um, however it is you define it. Um, and I think each of us uh, have probably a pretty common <laughs> definition of justice and social justice, but um, I, I think it's just really important for us to remember those quiet moments of power that we have um, every day to, uh, to stand up and fight back, whether it's watching somebody being subjected to racism and saying something about it, whether it's um, standing up for your fellow feminist in a room when a man just said the same thing she said, but the guy gets the credit. Mm -hmm. We've all been there, right? And those are small moments of power that we all have the opportunity to exercise, and together we can bring that together and really just, I think, make a big, big difference for ourselves and for the people that we love. Thank you for that. Colleen, how do you define power? Well, um, it is amazing to be here with everyone today. Um, it's just so good to be with this amazing panel of women that I admire and 
um, just, I'm just honored to be here. So thank you to the organizers and um, a special thanks to Chairman Hansen from the Duwamish Tribe and to all of the signers of Point Elliot Treaty, all of the Coast Salish people who, um, whose land we're really honored to be on right now. Um, I don't know if, um, when we think about power and you think about where we're at right now, we should all um, take that into consideration, that this is the place where um, there was a thriving culture, thriving people everywhere. Um, and then in the late 1800s, um, Native people were not allowed in the city. And we're still feeling that reverberation of lack of power to this very day. I'm very privileged every day to work with some of our most powerless people in our city, the homeless community of our um, beautiful city. And um, I think a lot about how I can impact them in the place of power that I'm at. And I believe that the way that I have to execute my power first has to be love-filled. It has to be looking at every single person in their eye and recognizing that they are a brother, they are a sister, they are a, um, a beautiful um, part of our family, um, and we need to consider them our relatives, that we belong together. I had an experience recently where I was walking in the doors of um, the, our facility at the Chief Seattle Club in Pioneer Square, and one of our folks was standing outside and he was um, exercising. Now this is a person I happen to know has schizophrenia um, and has been struggling for many years, has been um, experiencing homelessness for years. Um, but he was outside take, getting his exercise. He's stepping up and down, <laughs> up and down from the sidewalk and I knew that's what he's doing. I stopped to talk to him. And um, he was having a real good moment actually and we were, we were chatting and, and he, he stopped me and said, Colleen, do you know that I hear voices? And I said, yeah, I do know that you hear voices. And he said, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry that I hear these voices. And my heart broke for him. And it, and it, and it, and it imprinted itself on me. And I hope imprints itself on, on you as well. That our impact as human beings, the power that we have as individuals, is to show that moment of love and acceptance and belonging, that we belong together, that we are all related. And so um, as I think about my power that I have in this community, I also think of it as very practical. How can I practically fight that next battle so that we can be effective and get the work that done that we need to be needs to be done here? I'm honored to be a member of the Community Police Commission. I'm honored that um, our mayor asked me to co-chair our chief of next chief of police selection. And when I go to these meetings, that's how I think. I think how can I be full of love and also extremely practical so that we can get this work done and be as effective as possible. Um, so that is how I am looking at power right now, and I have to say that it shifts for me. Mm -hmm. It changes because, again, I come from a, a community where we've had so little power for so long, and um, I'm, I'm learning and I'm growing, and so um, it's an honor to be here and an honor to have that question asked, and I just reserve the right to change my answer <laughs> next year. <laughs> That's awesome. All, all rights will be honored. <laughs> yes. yes. Right. What about you, Senator Saldana? Right. Well, <laughs> you know, so obviously power is, um, first of all, um, I think in this room, and I quote Dolores Huerta, um, that power is in your body. And um, as someone that worked with those that had the least kind of positional power um, or hierarchical power um, is that she believed fully in the power of each human being and each body 
Um, and, uh, and so I think it's really, you know, poignant that we're here together um, at this time where, you know, across our country is some of the most uh, segregated time, um, our time when we're in, in worship um, and um, trying to um, pay attention to the sacred. Um, so I, I really feel the power of being in, in this room together. And, uh, and the power is in tears. And so as anyone that's ever worked with me in any kind of capacity, you know that um, the tears are right there because you feel the power um, and, um, and you feel the injustice and you feel the gap, you know, to your point of, you know, all being together and yet all feeling how um, the abyss often, that even though you're so close to that person next to you, you know, the abyss that can exist. Um, and, and, it, and for me, that's, um, you know, as an organizer, um, and again, as people that have worked with me have known my, um, my passion for power mapping and power analysis, um, and, um, and the more that we can put this tool into the hands of young organizers and communities, because really the power is in the people, um, and, it's, and, and it's power defined is really just the ability to get things done and having the capacity to act. And, and so that's, for me, what power is. And really, it's what you do with it. It's how you leverage it. And to uh, Colleen's point, power is fluid. And there's different kinds of power, as someone you know, spoke earlier, um, that is it power over or shared power, power with others. And I think the other piece that's really challenging as someone that always wants to get along to, with folks and find those connections is that power always takes a struggle to gain. And that as much as we want to think that someone can be um, charitable and share their power, unless it's actually done in a way where you have to struggle, um, where you have to fight. Um, and what I love, what Mijo um, said, is you know, that it's our duty to fight and our duty to win. And I think so often, you know, as a young person playing sports, I loved playing defense. I was good at defense. Um, but the challenge of like going and going for the shot, of putting yourself out there, um, you know, knowing that you know most times you actually would fail, but um, but it's really been in these latter years of you know that importance of actually seeking to win, because what's at stake is not yourself; it's about the dream that you have for your community and the dream that we have for our world, which is one that is more just. Um, so. Power is all those things, um, and, and I think, but for me, really, it comes back to power in the body. Thank you for that, and thank you all for the breadth of what you just shared with us. So I'm going to start um, with you, Colleen. Um, you have a unique position as the executive director of the Chief Seattle Club, a nonprofit of, by, and for Native people, which is extraordinarily impactful in our city. As we should recognize and has been recognized, we're on Duwamish land, and I was reflecting on what you said, um, and I felt it in my body to, to hear the words that Native people were not allowed on this land after it had been taken from them is a very powerful statement, I think, of, of what we're growing out of in, in our struggles. Um, Seattle also has a vibrant and influential urban native movement. We are a unique space where there are a lot of tribes in our urban area shaping our city um, and influencing our city. 
So can you speak about your intersectional experience as a woman, as a Native person, as someone that leads an organization that also serves Native people who find themselves in homelessness? And how do you bridge the power and voices of those who are usually the most vulnerable and least often given voice um, through the change that you, and work you do at Chief Seattle Club? Yeah, thank you. Well, let's see, last year at the same time, we were all getting ready to get out on the streets in March. Um, it was a pretty important day for me because I was, getting, I was allowed to be one of the speakers. I was honored to be one of the speakers on the stage. And I was, I was getting ready that morning and I was um, putting on a, a special skirt from our tradition, it's a, a prayer skirt that my sister had made me. And um, she had made it that Christmas. And then I um, started um, getting ready um, got my hair done, makeup, and then I put on my earrings, and they were my, my another sister had made those. I come from a family of eight as well, um, and I I realized that they um, they had not planned this, but they had they matched exactly the same exact colors, and I was I was just sort of stopped in my tracks and started reflecting a minute. So I come to the Pawnee Nation of Oklahoma, originally from the Nebraska and Kansas area. I come from a population of people that in the late 1800s, there was over 15,000 of us. By the time we moved on our own trail of tears to Oklahoma, there was only 600 of us left. And um, I, I, I think about those ancestors often, and I thought about, about them when I was on the stage that day, wearing this prayer skirt that my sister had made me and the earrings that my sister had made me. And I had my daughter standing next to me, and Rebecca's daughter was there too. It was awesome to have those young women on stage with us. And my daughter was standing there, and she was just totally like, this is normal. This is what mom does. <laughs> we're, on, we're on stage in front of 50,000 people. This is my life and experience. And at that moment, I felt my ancestors reaching out to me. And I felt their pride, and I felt their um, enormous uh, capacity to endure that had gotten me to this stage, had gotten my daughter to that stage, and for me to be even here at this moment, to be speaking in front of you. And even though I, I and yet I, I feel those ancestors, I feel them with me today, the work that I do here in the city is hard because we're still fighting that battle to be recognized as Native people in a city that is named after a chief. In a, we're, we're one of the very few cities in this country that's actually named after a chief, one of the major cities. And every day, I also work with our homeless community. If you're American Indian or Alaska Native in this city, you are seven times more likely to be homeless. We have the highest rates of, in, of homelessness in the city and in this country, Native people. That should um, cause us to take a moment to think and reflect on that, as we're on indigenous land. And I fight every day to um, find ways to be recognized, find ways to show that Native people are not only um, experiencing great rates of homelessness, but we have so much to offer to this community, that we have the sol solutions to some of our big problems, but our voices are not being heard. And how can they be heard? So part of my um, role and what, what I end up doing is I show up at everything. <laughs> I go everywhere I can. I talk to everywhere I go. And that can sometimes be exhausting. That can sometimes feel like, man, I'm not seeing my, my kids today. Um, but I'm lucky to have family that surrounds me, that supports me in doing this work. And so when I think about that intersectionality as a, a woman, 
as a native person, um, as a leader in this community, I go back to my ancestors. I feel them pushing me forward. I feel their strength and their endurance. And when it gets hard, I think, this isn't hard. <laughs> compared to what they have gone through, that I can keep going and will keep going in their strength and in their honor. Um, and so that's kind of where I'm, I'm landing at this moment. And um, I think that as we move forward as our city, you know, we have um, a council that is full of brown women. <laughs> and I think that's something that is shifting and changing. You know, when I come to City Hall, I go into Mayor Durkin's office. It's like with a warm hug. Like, when did that happen? You know, where where you feel like you're known and, and you're wanted there. You go into the council member's office. Things have shifted so that it feels and is different. And, and Council Member Wara has changed her committee to be civic development, public assets, and native communities. Mm -hmm. I don't believe we've ever had a committee at city council that was focused on native communities. So there's an amazing shift that's happening. I'm honored to be a part of it, and I look forward to the future. Thank you for that. Mayor Durkin, for me and I assume many folks in this room, there was a surge in excitement in 2017 when out of a very crowded 21-person primary, we were guaranteed that a woman for the first time in the century was going to be the mayor of this city. And here you are, America, uh, uh, Seattle's first gay woman mayor to serve and the first gay woman to serve as mayor in, in the country. So very exciting shift. Um, we're an amazing time of change in our city as your, your bio outlined. And there are many opportunities and challenges that you've been really clear that you think we need to address together. There's always special attention given to those who are firsts. Right there's always there's always um, first cheer and then <laughs> close watch, <laughs> um, and as a mayor who finds yourself in your identity at the cross section of being a gay woman and a, a gay and a woman, what do you feel are the responsibilities, advantages, and let's be honest, some barriers that also come up at the cross section of those identities, and how have you begun to experience that in your role as mayor? Yeah, thank you so much, and Colleen, amazing words. I also just want to take a moment, because I think this election was one that was momentous shifts and change. And if you looked what was coming out of it across the country, um, but I also want to recognize Carrie Moon is here. She's come out of, mm -hmm. you know, she's here back in the things. She is. Mm -hmm. I can tell you as someone who soldiered with her through almost 100 forum, her deep care for the city, <laughs> And we forget sometimes that these elections are tough on all of us, and, but it is from that that emerges a greater dialogue. So Carrie Moon, I just want to thank you for everything you've done for the city and everything I know you will do for the city. Um, you know, it is tough being the first, and I think all women know one thing we're not very good about is shared history. Um, I yesterday had the great opportunity to go to Wing Luke and see a bunch of people who were celebrating that they had taken this English language courses. They went back as elders in their community and they came around telling their stories. It was a storytelling. And I think we get to the point, part of women going through the system is we just grin and bear it. And you never want to let them see you sweat. And you've got to walk in that room and be just as smart and prepared or smart and prepared. Um, and I'm, I was struck by, I don't know how many people here and went once saw the movie The Post, um, but great movie about the Pentagon Papers and the First Amendment and all that. But there's a scene where Catherine Graham, who is then the owner of the Washington Post, walks into a room to talk about the newspaper's future and the doors open. It is all men. 
except for her. And I can't tell you how many times in my career that has been my uh, experience. Up until last year, before I ran for this office, regularly had a client where I'd go to a meeting where there would be 15 people in the room, I would be the only woman. I would be the only gay, for sure. Um, and so I think that we just inure ourselves to it, and we don't share the struggle enough so that people coming up know what that struggle looks like and how you can survive it, and not only survive it, but prevail. Um, you know, I was the first openly gay person appointed by a president of the United States to a, part, a leadership position in the Department of Justice. Think about that. Over 200 years, the Department of Justice had existed. It is the Department of Justice. <laughs> you know, it is the it only government department that is supposed to also stand for a moral value. And yet, over, over 200 years had passed before an openly gay person had been appointed by a president in a position of leadership. And so coming into that position, you feel an enormous sense of responsibility um, because you know there's a different level of scrutiny. But you also know you're still treated differently. I miss President Obama with every cell in my body. Yes. Yeah. You know? But here I was, the first gay person to serve in that position, and the entire time I served, my partner could not be on my health insurance because it was forbidden by federal law. And so every other person who was married or in a domestic partnership recognized under law could do it, but I couldn't. And so I never was a full partner um, in many ways. And so I think that you've, you just put it down here somewhere. But if you look today, I really believe you see the assault coming out of Washington. And it's not new. It's historic. That really, if we had a power of the majority, this world would look very different. If we really had power of the majority, the world would look different. And so those in power, and particularly now what you see in Washington, D.C., is the way you diffuse power of the majority is you separate and divide and marginalize people by groups and class. And you do it over and over again. If you look at the assaults, it's not a mistake that there's a huge assault on immigrants and people of color. It's not a mistake because they want those people to feel marginalized and only in the fight. That women's rights, not just the reproductive rights, but the right to birth control and control of your body, the right to say no, are under assault. That we look at religion and face, that Muslims have to be singled out or our Sikh brothers and sisters hated because they're mistaken for a different faith when all those faiths should be embraced. Um, LGBTQ, that you can have a president tweet in the morning, we are going to get rid of transgenders. Just tweet it like that. And so everybody who feels under assault for their own identity and their own collective, if it is just by itself, it is dividing. But if we see that intersection, we see it as a fight of collective justice, and we come together and stand up for everyone who is being assaulted, then you really will see the change. You will see that you can have that power of the majority if we come together and focus on the humanity because at the end of the day, I believe it is the common humanity that is the most powerful experience. And if we focus on that common humanity and stand together with our brothers and sisters every time they're assaulted, for whatever reason they are assaulted, then I think we can have this collective intersection. So when I come to work as mayor every day in every meeting, that's what I'm thinking about is, how, how is that playing out in our policies, in our laws, in how we deal with each other? You know, they say, one of the things no one talks about is, I'm the first, you know, only the, the first woman in 92 years to be mayor, but I'm also the first mom to be mayor in 92 years. <laughs> and, and they say that a, a mother is only as happy as her least happy child. 
Well, that's but. true being mayor too. I only feel as much power as the power of the least powerful has and how do we collect to bring together and rise people up. So I think that's what intersectionality is about, is to say we will not let you fight and divide us. We will not let you marginalize anyone. We will focus on our joint humanity and from that comes power. Thank you. So, um, Mijo, as Executive Director of Social Justice Fund, SJF, you get to shape a really unique funding model, and I also work in um, funding, and it, it, the way in which you all do your work is transforming, really, the field of philanthropy as a whole. Because your work connects everyday people into an immersive experience to understand the intersection of race, class, and what it is to give dollars towards work, and with that knowledge, those individuals get to direct literally tens of thousands of dollars to support base building, organizing and movement building throughout the Northwest region. You often get to be the introduction for those people that they even could be someone who could ask for money and give money and, and be um, someone who influences those spaces. I know for me, that was my first time ever having that experience. As you consider the influence of money in politics and social change, how does it look for women, and especially women of color, queer women, and trans women, to shape and fund movements? Because we know that's where so much power lies, is with those dollars. And how is that changing what we build in our movements and how we shift dynamics of power? A very easy so, question. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no problem. Um, so, um, <clears throat> As you alluded to, um, Social Justice Fund is kind of a weirdo in the world of philanthropy. Um, I go to a lot of philanthropy conferences, and um, they're strange. If there's anyone here who works in the world of philanthropy, you <laughs> hopefully would agree with me. It's, an, it's a strange world. And so I, I, I just want to say real quickly, I, I just want to kind of put a just have a little footnote, side note, on what are we even talking about when we're talking about philanthropy. So number one, um, we're talking about institutional philanthropy, right? We're talking about foundations, we're talking about grants, we're talking about this whole intense infrastructure, professionalization that has been built up in a very short recent time um, around this idea of philanthropy. The idea of giving and sharing actually goes back literally as far as civilization. So the idea that uh, you are hungry and I have you know, enough food means that I should share some food with you. That, if we did not have that baked into our DNA, we would not have survived as a species, right? So philanthropy as a way of sharing power and taking care of one another goes back as far as civilization. Philanthropy as this professionalized, institutionalized thing is a weird little blip in history. What is the role of, when it, you know, one thing that your question brings up is for me is kind of, what is philanthropy, that big P, institutionalized philanthropy, for right now? And one thing that I think we need to increasingly say very clearly is philanthropy is not government. Okay. And it's really scary that I even have to say that, but I think that there's some confusion, increasing confusion about that, and increasing power that big P philanthropy has. Um, as we're talking about this power over versus power to, there's increasing power over that philanthropy has that is unchecked and does not even have any pretense or mechanisms by which it could be accountable. I was recently at a philanthropy conference where there was a panel discussion and then you know big audience Q&A about the topic of, in this time of increasing government budget cuts, um, should philanthropy be filling the gaps? And there were a lot of people who were totally comfortable with that. 
why wouldn't get philanthropy fill the gaps? Like, yes, let's let's rush in there. And you know, rather than having a conversation about why are these budget cuts happening, how can we prevent those budget cuts from happening in the first place? How can we repair? How can we fund the movements, the organizations, the people being impacted to actually fix that hole rather than trying to plug it uh, as foundations who are in no way accountable and have proven ourselves to be entirely unaccountable to, um, to the people who are impacted by that. I say we there, but as Kirsten pointed out, SJF, I say we as the like big philanthropy we, but Social Justice Fund um, definitely does strive to be accountable to the people who are um, most impacted by injustice. And so, um, you know, we, uh, we work to, dem to democratize philanthropy in our model and how we do it, but really the point is not to democratize philanthropy, the point is to, is to democratize democracy, which <laughs> still has a long way to go. And therefore the solution is not philanthropy, the solution is movements. The solution is organizations that are working for long-term systemic change um, and that are led by the people most directly impacted. So. Organization working on farm workers' rights, for example, is going to be led by farm workers. An organization that is, um, you know, working to end um, homelessness is going to be led by people who are homeless themselves, or formerly homeless, who have homeless family members. Right? These are the people who have the most expertise, have lived experience that has largely been ignored by the recognized experts, um, who have innovative, creative solutions because they know, they know these problems inside and out and have real urgency. These problems are not academic or abstract to them. It's survival, it's life and death. So that's why we consider it not just the sort of principle of self-determination, but a matter of what is effective and strategic to fund those organizations that are led by those most directly impacted. And to follow that um, ourselves, right? To not hold our grantees to a standard that we can't hold ourselves to, which is why um, we do have this model of um, making sure that we're incorporating, um, including uh, all kinds of people, everyday folks, people of color, low-income people, um, people who are generally excluded from capital P philanthropy to be in this role as fundraisers, as appreciated, recognized donors, and as grant makers. And I've seen time and time again where having those people in the room makes a real difference, where somebody can say, I grew up in a community like the one that we're talking about here, and I know you know, this is, I know what it's like to live in a rural community where we didn't have internet access, where, you know, our, you know, where the library was, you know, the community center and how important it is to hold on to public libraries. Or I know what it is to be racially profiled and why I think that the solution that is, you know, being proposed by this organization makes sense. Those are the kinds of voices that have been traditionally excluded um, from these decisions and that, uh, again, when we kind of think about this idea of power too, that it's not about tokenizing certain voices and saying, oh, well, you know, I found a person of color to say the thing that I wanted to say, so now I can lift that up, but really figuring out ways to have these deep conversations, authentic conversations, and share power together. Thank you for that. I just wanted to give folks a reminder. Volunteers, are, are you about, raise your hand if you'd like a postcard. Make sure you get a postcard. We're gonna be collecting those in about 10 minutes for Q&A, and I just wanna make sure any questions folks have get answered. So thank you for that. Council Member Gonzalez, <clears throat> in 2015, you were the first Latina to ever be elected to mm -hmm. Seattle City Council. 
And in 2017, you overwhelmingly, again, with 71% of the vote share, won your seat, which, as a woman of color, I was excited because I think it shows <laughs> um, the viability and staying power of women of color and how much that representation is so important and, and needed. And to have the city agree with my opinion was really nice. <laughs> I can't help recall how you and other women on the council were treated almost immediately upon you being seated in 2015 when there was a split vote on the stadium. There was overwhelming amounts of harassment in almost every social media forum you can imagine. And it was decidedly racist, pointedly racist, sexist dialogue. I was shocked. I think a lot of people in Seattle were shocked because we see ourselves as a city that, that doesn't do that sort of thing. And what I have seen in having you and a lot of women on the city council is a tone seems to have moved since 2015 to 2017. And I wondered if you experienced that in between your two races, and if you would speak to what you think contributes to that tone and how we can continue to nurture whatever is changing the acceptance of women and women of color in leadership. Well, thank you. I think if the tone on the city council has changed, it's because everybody realized we were right. <laughs> <laughs> so, just want to say that. Um, no, I appreciate the question, um, and um, you know, I, I, it was uh, 2016 was a rough year for the women on the city council, um, and. Um, and, and part of it, you know, the example that you give of um, a, a vote that we took on a street vacation, a mundane land use street vacation um, for a, um, you know, potential clearing of the way to have a uh, very large, expensive, publicly funded and so publicly taxpayer funded um, stadium on the south end of town is, I think, just an example of it, but it isn't the thing. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I know a lot of people point to it because it was the one that sort of really ripped the Band-Aid off and allowed the oozing to occur. Mm -hmm. But, um, and there was oozing. <laughs> um, but I think that, I think it's important for us not to, not to get, you know, overly fixated on that particular example. I think in the last um, two years, um, I think it's fair to say that me and my my colleagues, um, women colleagues on the city council have um, experienced some reaction, sometimes positive, sometimes negative, to the fact that we are a majority female city council. And now with the addition of uh, Councilmember Mosqueda, we're a super majority female Seattle city council. Yeah. Super. Super. <laughs> yeah. Super duper majority. Uh, I'm just gonna keep upping it up every single time I talk about it. It's really remarkable, right? And I think that that you know before Teresa joined us, um, you know it, it 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 is a situation where sometimes um, you get correspondence or interaction with constituents and community or with other uh, power brokers throughout the city that. Uh, think that the thing that you're caring about right now is just because you're a woman. Um, or somehow that they have to explain something a little bit more deeply to you as the woman on the city council mansplaining. Um, in a way that I think is really 
offensive and inappropriate. And um, it, but I think that I think that now now that we're in a position where there are six of us, um, I, I really do feel a shift in what we look like, um, how we speak to each other, and and wanting to really strive towards this spirit of collaboration to uh, get things done. And, and I think really what we're going to start seeing, I think what will be really interesting now that we have a woman uh, in the mayor's office as well, is seeing how uh, mayoral and council priorities begin to really shift and coalesce towards advancing policies that are going to help working women in our city and families in our city. I uh, was listening to a piece on NPR a couple weeks ago that was that was that was actually talking about how our city is evolving. And one of the ways that our city is evolving is that we're having a massive um, displacement, not just of communities of color, but of families and childbearing age folks uh, who can't imagine living in a city um, where they have to raise one or two kids in a one bedroom apartment at $2,000 a month when you have to pay $2,000 a month for childcare. And I think that that's really sad to me to think that we have gotten to a point in our debate around displacement and um, have kind of just forgotten about this um, family concept and, and what kind of narrative and story we want to be able to tell about ourselves as a city as being one where all families can live. Um, as a, as a unit. And, um, and I think that now that we have this city council, we can really have a conversation that is led by women for women to think about what it means to create a city that, um, that is really centered on those family values. And with that, I think comes, um, you know, preservation efforts in terms of making sure that we have diverse communities within our city. Um, and all of that just has a ripple effect, right? For, from everything for how do we empower our, our uh, moms and dads on how to uh, advocate for their child's education within our public school system, how do we provide early learning to every single zero to five-year-old in the city um, who can't afford it. Um, those are the things that I think are gonna start bubbling up in terms of our priorities, and I'm really excited about that. I think the challenge part that you uh, your question is queuing up is how can we do that in a way that doesn't inherently create um, a dynamic of those people are getting everything and I'm getting nothing. And trust me, I've gotten calls from constituents who have accused me of only focusing on Latinos and uh, at the expense of white folks. Um, I disagree with that. Plus, I also think that Latinos need a little love, uh, <laughs> given the historical <laughs> issues of underrepresentation and, um, and, and racism there. So... Uh, but that's a topic for a different uh, different day, um, and I think. I, but I think that you know the question is is how are we going to come together when we're talking about power and action, and how do we bring our power into action? I do think it's important for us um, uh, both as organizers and as policymakers and policy thinkers to really support those priorities that are that are really uh, designed to invest in our communities. Um, particularly in in women, and um, and I think also that that when we do uh, that type of inside outside game, as I like to call it, 
where the outside is supporting us on the inside, recognizing that we are still part of the overarching movement, even though we're on the inside, I think is something that we need to consistently remind ourselves. Um, it, it's not, it's not a, oh, we elected you, now you're one of them, and we're gonna like, you know, torch you on Twitter every opportunity we can get. It's, it's more about, we helped elect you. We helped get you where you're at. And we, and we did that because you're one of us. And just because that word council member or the word mayor or the word senator is now in front of your name, you don't suddenly turn into the enemy. And so I think, I think that's, that's where the danger lies for us as we keep this fight moving forward is how do we hold each other accountable but do that through the lens of respect and understanding and keeping us centered on, uh, on what we're supposed to be doing and how we're supposed to be doing it. That doesn't mean that I don't have two brain cells to rub together and I can't, I don't have my own ideas, <laughs> but it does mean, it does mean that I will always be interested. And I think, you know, leaders like the ones before you always need to be interested in making sure that our thinking, our analysis, our strategy is really rooted in how do we continue to empower our communities to hold us accountable, but also to um, fight for what they know um, and what we know is is best for um, for those communities. So I, 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 that's kind of where I'm at right now, and we'll see how that evolves over the next um, few months. We'll see if there's another arena vote that causes me to drastically change my opinion, um, and there might be. I don't know, and, but I, I think that I think that's for me how we can best support each other once we're in these spaces is really sort of not forgetting that we come from. We come from you all. We have our own. We have our own intersectionalities as well. And I don't just become um, a council member. I still, you know, have aspirations of becoming a mom someday. I still, um, I still cry every single time I think about the fact that dreamers and their parents are being used as bargaining chips in our federal government right now as we're sitting here, and that's really hard for me. And. My job is not to be weak, my job is to be strong. And the reason it's my job to be strong is because that's what you all voted me to do. You didn't vote me to come into City Hall and feel powerless. And even though there are moments where I do and where I feel like a total imposter, um, I get myself up and I remind myself why I'm here. But it's, you know, it's really hard to even sit here right now knowing that there are rooms full of white people in, uh, in DC right now bargaining with our brothers and sisters' lives and their livelihood. And if that doesn't piss you off, I don't know what will. And if it doesn't make your heart cry, I don't know what else will, but this is what we've come to in this country and we here in Seattle have such an important role to keep pushing ourselves, to keep push, pushing each other. And I believe that we can do that through a lens of love and respect. And, uh, and still cherish each other's role in this overarching uh, thing that we call a movement for justice. Thank you for that um, so much. And I just wanna say, we've had two panelists cry already. <laughs> and I love that. It wasn't me. <laughs> 
I've broken the seals. Uh, if Wait, I can yeah. cry, anybody can cry up here. And, um, and, and I cry all the time. And I want to say that I think there is power in vulnerability. Yeah, yeah, and I yes. think the ability of women to stand yes. forward and recognize that, that we don't have to divorce mm -hmm. our heart from our head, from our hands to get work mm -hmm. done and do it really, really well. And in fact, it gets exactly. done better most of the time. And we win most of the time when that happens. So I just want to say that y'all are doing yes. a very good job. Yes. Yes. So, Mo, I know you from a whole set of organizing work, but um, today we're going to concentrate on the work that you do with Got Green. Got Green is a powerhouse organization for folks who don't know. And what Got Green is doing is putting in communities' hands really the thorniest, and many of us think the most important issue of our time, which is considerations around climate and environmental change and environmental impact. And Got Green's work at inception has been rooted in the intersection of what that means if you are of a certain race, gender, genders, or class, and how those impacts look so different for those communities. And as Mijo mentioned earlier, those communities most impacted have the most creative solutions. One of the central considerations in your work has always been about bringing the voices of those most impacted to the forefront of the environmental crisis. And again and again and again, we see that those folks are often women, women in work, co-workers, students, mothers, grandmothers, aunties, that often they look very different from what the standard mainstream environmental movement looks like. How has your work and success been shaped by young, black, brown, native, queer, and trans women leading the work? And what are the changes in the way in which they talk about climate change and the environment? So in my position as the Young Leaders in the Green Movement program organizer at Got Green and throughout my organizing life, I have had the privilege to organize in spaces with other young, black, brown, native, and queer women being represented as more than a single token and or leading the work. As such, when I think of the work I have done in these spaces and what success has looked like, it is always a mix of surviving and thriving. On a most basic level, sometimes we do this work to just keep our communities alive and to just echo what Loreno was just talking about, where there are white people right now sitting in a room making decisions with young people's mm. lives whose parents fought so hard to get here. So sometimes it really is just about keeping our folks alive. It is a success that me and every other marginalized person in this room are here today because somewhere along the line, someone explicitly said that our lives weren't important, convinced others that we were a hindrance to their safety and or progress, and overtly tried to extinguish us. Then, much of this explicit violence moved to implicit systemic violence, such as placing environmentally hazardous plants, materials, etc., by majority in low-income communities of color or a willingness to displace low-income people to farther out suburbs with less resources and often to places that are susceptible to climate disasters, like Kent with its tendency to flood and dam troubles. Or as Naomi Klein talked about in her book, This Changes Everything, we have decided that some communities are sacrificial communities. And, her, and in her most recent book, no is not enough, she elaborates on this idea by saying, in which she talks about the most recent election, 
Most of Trump's voters were not uh, primarily driven by white lash or male lash sentiment. Plenty of them said um, they voted for Trump because they liked what he said about trade and jobs. But there's a problem with these stories. You cannot cast a ballot for a person who is open, openly riling up hatred based on race, gender, or physical ability, unless on some level you think those issues aren't important. That the lives of the people being put in tangible danger by this rhetoric and the politics that flow from it matter less than your life and the lives of people who look more like you. There is a reverence and a respect for this kind of success, but our lives are not poverty porn. Our work and success is about getting to a place where we can thrive. And in my 22 years of being part of political communities, I have seen that getting stronger in two major ways. One is more focus on personal development and further clarifying working towards the yes. This is exemplified by Grace Lee Boggs when she says, there's an opportunity for a new society to be built on people who are transforming themselves and who are not just opposing those who oppress them. When Grace Lee Boggs says those who are transforming themselves, I have noticed that there are more workshops, services, and organizations run by marginalized communities that are dedicated to personal healing, mental health services, and working towards having better relationship skills with the understanding, not of just some fluffy kumbaya, let's hold each other's hands and sing to each other, but instead that the understanding that we as organizers, and really everyone, must unpack what oppression has done to us or we will continue to repeat those patterns and systems ourselves. Secondly, although the terrible things in our society keep us running around, I think there is more clear messaging and projects coming out of marginalized communities on what our yes is. What are the societies and things we want to see instead of just our no? In addition, I have seen a clearer connection between environmental issues and other forms of oppression. This leads me to the second part of this question. How power building for us is different than other spaces that work on environmental issues. Using Dot Green as an example, I would say it probably looks very similar on the day to day. We are in meetings, doing leadership development, strategic planning, fundraising, gossiping, etc. <laughs> <laughs> the big difference is every activity in our agency is led by people who come from marginalized communities. So the environmental issues that we address are always at the intersections of economic, racial, and environmental justice. This is exemplified by a quote we use from Damu Smith, former leader of the National Black Justice Network. Those of us involved in the environmental justice movement have a different take on what it means to be an environmentalist. We view our struggle for environmental justice as being organically linked to all struggles for justice, against poverty, against homelessness, against police brutality, racial violence, and racial profiling, against the prison industry. If we don't have political justice, if we don't have racial justice, if we don't have economic justice, we cannot achieve environmental justice. 
Through our work, we are continuing a lineage of people of color environmentalists who promoted and created spaces for the critical thinking and the action needed to exemplify the ways marginalized, marginalized communities are treated and how that is replicated in the way that we treat our natural resources and the environment. And by unlearning this mindset and stopping these actions, we can fulfill multiple needs at the same time. Thank you very much. So I'm just gonna give folks a prompt. If you have a question written on a postcard, please raise that postcard high right now. Volunteers are gonna start coming to collect them. We have two more folks speaking, but wanna make sure we get the questions queued up so we can go right into Q&A after that. Does anybody have postcards? We don't. Oh, anyone who needs, oh, I apologize. Anyone who needs them, get, get a couple now too. All right. And we'll do another round of postcard collection, but we just wanted to get the process started. So if you don't have a postcard and want one, raise your hand and a volunteer will give you one. And if you do have a question ready to go, they'll also collect those right now. Thank you for that reminder. <laughs> Wonderful. So um, <clears throat> Councilmember Mosqueda, um, I know that on the campaign trail and what you immediately launched into as you came into your city council role, you've brought a lot of excitement and promise from the intersections of work and labor movements that you've been a part of for so long. And you've really grown out of a labor movement, which let's be honest, is a little, has some deficits on women in leadership. So the fact that you've been able to bridge and build more women in leadership there and then also bring it to your role in governance is amazing. With the living wage fight, the win on 15 now, sick and safe leave, and other workers' rights that we've won over the last few years, Seattle is certainly leading the way in shifting the conversation around the country. And I know that one of your considerations is where the intersection of gender and race fits into the conversation of the gender wage gap. Can you give us a context of how women are shaping the labor, labor movement as a whole, and also what you consider places where governance can address that intersection of gender and race and the wage gap and further your goals for equity in that front? Well, thank you so much for this question. And I think it's critical that as we talk about women's rights, this question is part of this panel because women's rights are labor rights and fighting for workers' rights is standing up and fighting for women. So thank you for including this question. You know, in the labor movement, and um, as Kristen mentioned, I worked at the AFL-CIO for almost seven years um, as uh, both in the halls of Olympia and the halls here, fighting and asking and demanding change, standing up for workers' rights. Um, and I, I say that I didn't leave the labor movement. I brought the labor movement with me to the halls of City Hall. And every time we get labor champions to stand up to run for office, knowing that it's our community that put, helped put them in office, nobody is leaving. We must stay true to those identities and to those values and make sure that we bring that movement with us into the halls, no matter if it's in Congress, in Olympia, here, or at our county, or in the mayor's office. So uh, we say in the labor movement often that the best organizer is a really bad boss. And we got a real bad boss right now. He's taken over our White House and he's really imposing terrible changes and it's spurring us into action, right? It's causing us to take to the streets like we did yesterday and last year, to take to the airports and demand accountability, to make sure that we're standing on the strike lines in solidarity with our union brothers and sisters and it's pushing more of us to run for office. That's 
ultimately why I decided to stop saying no to run for office and why I'm here. I think that's why you also see people throughout the country within labor organizations standing up to run for office within their own unions or standing up to say, yes, I want to be part of this movement and taking to the strike lines and organizing. Uh, we have, as I like to quote Kristen Rowe Finkbinder, who's the CEO and founder of Moms Rising, we have leave it to beaver policies when it comes to labor standards in an era that has not changed in decades when we have 40% of breadwinners as women. Something is wrong. So we are standing up and demanding change. We're standing up and running for office, whether within unions or joining our brothers and sisters in the labor movement, um, and also pushing for those policy changes that can empower us right now. Because when I say that workers' rights are women's rights, workers' rights are also racial justice issues and um, economic justice issues. Because if you look at who disproportionately is represented in low-wage industries, it's women, it's people of color, it's immigrants and refugees. When you look at who experiences retaliation and intimidation and harassment and wage theft on the workforce, it's more likely to be women and people of color and immigrants and refugees. And when you look at who's been historically excluded from protections under uh, federal and state laws, it's predominantly immigrants and women and people of color. Just think about domestic workers and who disproportionately makes up domestic workers who take care of our kiddos, who take care of our elders, who help clean our houses. It's women, and most of them are people of color, and most of them are immigrants. And so when we also think about some of the most recent kind of labor standards um, platforms that we've been so proud to, I think, lead on here in Seattle, such as sick leave, sick and safe leave, that, which we now have statewide thanks to Initiative 1433, but really initiated here in the city of Seattle five years ago. Um, when you think about family leave, which Lorena Gonzalez pushed for at the city level and ultimately that helped to make sure that the state saw a win possible, a bipartisan win possible in the state chambers, um, this was an effort 10 years in the making. 10 years in the making. That is not right. Issues affecting women and people of color have been put at the back burner. And when you think about who's disproportionately affected by the lack of sick leave, the lack of safe leave, the lack of paid family leave, it's women. We are more likely to either have to take ourselves out of the workforce or, be, you know, make this impossible decision to take yourself out of the workforce because there's not affordable childcare, there's not paid leave. It's you end up taking yourself out of the workforce, and as a woman, we see lower lifetime earning potential less retirement security, and more um, likelihood that you'll be tracked into low-wage jobs for the rest of your career. So when we talk about labor standards and, and issues affecting the workforce, we have to think of those who are most vulnerable for, first and put them at the forefront. And that's why I think the intersectionality of this conversation today, but hopefully the work that we do on an ongoing basis, really connects those dots. What is good for women is good for workers. And when we say that we're going to stand up and fight for workers' rights, we have to put women and people of color at the, for, at the forefront of that discussion. So um, we've had uh, an ongoing, uh, I think, uh, fight with the Trump agenda, right? People have been co constantly concerned about what he has um, put before us. And what he's put before us has been this ongoing, relentless attack on attacking our fundamental right as women, as people of color, as immigrants, and from the LGBTQIA community. And I think the mayor said it well, 
with the intent to try to divide us. Because if we get divided and we silo ourselves and we don't see those intersectionalities of our struggle, then it makes it much harder for us to win. Harder for us to win on issues like health care for everyone regardless of citizenship status. Health care for women and our reproductive justice. Health care for the trans and LGBTQIA community. Because when we don't stand up and fight for these issues, he wins, they win, the corporate agenda wins. We get complicit, we get complacent, and we think there's just nothing we can do. So the issues that I think that we can fight on and win together, we must see those intersectionalities if we're ever gonna have affordable childcare for everyone, if we're ever gonna have healthcare for everyone in our region, if we're ever gonna actually stand up and fight against assault, intimidation, and harassment. It requires us working together. And when we get folks who are from community and in positions of power coming together to fight for these issues and putting our issues on the front burner instead of the back burner, we win, and I think that that's what I'm so excited about with um, all of the wins across our country. The issues that have been thought of as nice to do, or I'll get to that later, or thanks for putting that on my radar, like childcare and family <laughs> leave and sick leave and equal pay. Hell no, these are front burner issues. We're gonna put them up first and we're gonna vote on them and actually make radical change. And I think that we, it is possible to do that if you, if you look at past wins where we have seen those intersectionalities. I think about, for example, the fact that we credit ourselves a lot for the um, CTAC $15, $15 an hour win, and I see working Washington folks in the room, and give it up for all of the people who made that $15 an hour possible in CTAC. But that was really looking at the intersectionality between what low-wage workers experience and who are disproportionately working in those low-wage industries in the airport, in SeaTac. It's immigrants, it's people of color, it's women who've been disproportionately impacted by those low-wage industries. And working together through that intersectionality across um, religions and race and gender, you all made that win possible, which rippled throughout the country. I looked more recently at Initiative 124, which saw the impact of hotel workers who are disproportionately more likely to experience sexual assault on the job, harassment, retaliation, and have zero place to go because they are in a hotel room without an outlet. And the intersectionality of that gender injustice tied to the fact that it was mostly women of color and predominantly immigrant workers in these hotel industries who are also working low-wage jobs. And together we stood up and we fought for Initiative 124, which we will now be leading the nation again in showing what it means to stand up for our most vulnerable. And I think about the sort of movement win that we saw when farm worker women called on actors and actresses who have higher positions of privilege, I would say, to demand that the, the folks who had the voice, who had a microphone, who had a camera in front of them, recognize that women, especially farm worker women, domestic worker women, are more likely to experience retaliation and harassment and called on them to join with the farm workers. And that's why we have the Time's Up movement, because the farm worker women made that call to SAG-AFTRA. And with the unions united, with Unite here and the United Farm Workers and SAG-AFTRA, which is, which is the union representing um, actors together made that call for justice. And we say time's up. Time's up in terms of harassment. Time's up in terms of our, our stuff being put on the back burner. And time's up with us asking somebody else to make these changes. That's why a lot of us are standing up within our communities, within labor movements, and within the call for more political representation to make sure that our voices are not only heard, but that we're leading with those lived experiences and that we see the intersectionality of our work. 
You know, I, I also want to comment um, really quickly about the importance of that intersectionality right now because, and as you mentioned, Naomi Klein, I was going to mention another book of hers. How many folks have read The Shock Doctrine? The Shock Doctrine, which really talks about disaster capitalism. When disasters happen, you know, think about New Orleans and, and natural disasters like that, which is not so natural when you think about climate change and the human impact that we've had with pushing that. But when disasters happen and disaster capitalists like Trump get to say, look over here, I'm going to create all this chaos and commotion. And I'm going to tweet and I'm going to try to divide you and I'm going to take advantage of your um, kind of uh, frantic approach to my tweets and, and all these policies. Well, in the back room, they are intentionally passing policies to undermine the very social fabric which we fought for, the very policies that have protected communities and workers and women and immigrants. Because if we think about this last year and we look at the headlines leading up to yesterday's march, I was watching CNN and at the bottom it was like, you know, poorest year, nothing really happened, what did he do? He tried to divide us, there's not been a ton of policies actually passed through the, through the Congress. But what has he done if you look at the number of executive orders that he has issued, eradicated our protections on overtime, eradicated protections for workplace safeties and protections, said to the, to the labor Office of Labor Standards and EPA, if you want one protection, you're going to have to undo two. For every one that you want, we're going to have to undo two. And not to mention that we can't even use words like fetus and science-based and evidence-based when we talk about healthcare issues. What he is doing is trying to distract us, right? The tweets that he is putting out are distracting us, and yet at the same time, the cabinet and the people that have surrounded him have intentional, multi-decades-long um, uh, you know, attempts to try to eradicate uh, minimum wage protections, overtime protections, Medicaid, Medicare, Social Security, all of the things that we have spent decades fighting for. He is intentionally working to undermine those as we get distracted by tweets or, even worse, potentially fighting against each other. So. We have an opportunity now, maybe an opportunity that only comes once in a generation, to try to unite people around these shared um, experiences, around our shared progressive values, showing that we won't be divided. Because if it's not Trump, it's the Supreme Court or it's Congress. And right now in front of the Supreme Court is a decision um, called Janus, which will radically undermine our ability to see organized labor pull together workers, and actually have protections under unions. So what do we do to fight both the Supreme Court, Trump, Congress, is to really look at the opportunities that we have right here in the city of Seattle. Because as I said before, we have won, we have led on issues like minimum wage and sick leave and uh, wage theft, and we can continue to now identify opportunities for us to pull together. So a few of those include lifting up the work of domestic workers with the Domestic Workers Bill of Rights, which we're really excited to be able to introduce this year, uh, with Working Washington, with Casa Latina, with the Domestic Workers uh, Alliance, standing up and fighting for protections here at the local level that have been historically denied to workers from the national level on down. We're going to be standing up and fighting to make sure that we can have new educational opportunities so we can tell workers, immigrants, communities about their rights, their rights in the workplace, their rights as workers, their rights as residents of this city that we call a welcoming city. We're going to continue, I think, to show that, as I think Lorena Gonzalez mentioned, when you get into office, we are going to stand united and, and collectively push for greater shared power and shared opportunity to push for change. And um, we're going to do this not just by um, 
saying, hey, here's a bill, but actually having those <laughs> folks who have the lived experience demanding the types of changes that we need, having those voices be the lead, uh, lead in the marches, lead in testimony, and lead in terms of what policy change looks like. So I hope that, you know, in answer to your question, that we see that the changes that we not only want to see for a greater um, diverse labor movement, um, and not only for greater diversity in terms of political representation, it's about how we create greater opportunities for us to see ourselves in these types of positions, that we lift up the voices, that we recognize that it has taken years, years of, 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 of political power and a change in mentality to accomplish what we've what we've now been so proud to sort of pat ourselves on the back for, and recognize that we have to start organizing now if we want to see some of those changes come in the future. So I would very much like to make sure that um, we do take this opportunity, this once in a generation opportunity, to push for our progressive values, to push the narrative first from those most impacted, and that we do that within every level of government. We do that within our, our own organizations, including within labor movements. And that we remember that this is not about getting elected to positions. This is about service, and we are servants to the public. And thank you all for making those past wins possible. We will continue to fight for more workers' rights. Thank you for that, and thank you for all the volunteers. We've had some back and forth up here getting the questions queued up. So with that, I open up to um, the last formal question before we open up the Q&A with Senator Rebecca Saldana. So um, Rebecca, you were appointed to the State Senate in 2016 and represent um, the most ethnic, one of the most ethnically diverse districts in the state, the 37th District, which represents much of South Seattle and Renton area. When you took that seat, um, Pramila Jayapal was moving on to be a, a federal House of Representative representative, and you found yourself in the same position she'd been in, the only woman of color in the Senate. That has shifted this year. Uh, Manka Dingram has now joined you on the Senate side, so now there are two. <laughs> We're working it up. We double, yeah, 100% gross good. Let's, let's double that up every time um, in the Senate. And we've also seen with that a party shift in the Senate, which I, which I know for a lot of us who do political work in Olympia has opened up a lot of possibilities. There'd been a lot um, with a conservative um, Senate. We had moved from passing about 900 bills a year to less than 400 over the last few years. So. Um, very exciting time, and there's a lot of issues that, um, when we talk about issues that disproportionately impact women, are up for consideration, including funding for public education, gun responsibility, and reproductive equity, just to name a few. Um, as a woman of color who's also an advocate and community builder, how do you think we can better build support for women like you that find themselves as a minority, not only in gender, but in race, in these very specific decision-making spaces where that intersectional identity actually lends a huge amount of expertise to these conversations that might be under-respected and utilized? How do we, as folks have mentioned from the outside, show the support that needs to happen so that your voices are amplified on the inside as you're fighting for us? Well, uh, and I definitely want to make sure we have some space for the, the many questions that will come. But what I'll say is a couple things. I mean, one is um, changing what your local um, electives look like. 
um, having a powerful city council is a great counterbalance um, to um, the institutional um, desire to keep things status quo that you know often happens um, in an institution um, and has been. I think they, you know, the the way things have been in Olympia for a while. So you know, changing, you know, winning in Burien mattered. Winning in Seattle mattered, and of course, all the effort of so many folks to um, be able to double women of color in the Senate this last session really, really matters. Um, and you know, just yesterday we were finally, for the first time in over six years, able to pass a piece of legislation off the Senate floor. Um, which is called the Washington State Voting Rights Act. And this, it's huge. The, the, the House had passed it over five times over the last five years, um, but we had never been able to even get it to the floor for a real vote um, until this year. And that will open up opportunities to do what I said, is you know change the way that your local um, electeds are um, held accountable and how they represent. Because the only way that we get real change at the state level um, is by making sure that um, we are building partnerships with our local communities, because it's the local community that matter, you know, what, whatever we do in Olympia, unless it actually changes the way things are for the daily life of people in Central District and unincorporated King County and Skyway um, or Yakima or Pasco or Richland, is if um, folks that are most impacted are shaping and changing um, the way that decisions are made. So that really matters. And for those that are able um, to show up, I mean, um, I, Teresa started to mention some of the people that I see in the room, but I mean, the way that we get things done is that it's always a constant communication of back and forth um, and being able to you know, have me at the table, but also know that there's people organizing on the outside and that we're able to um, connect and strategize. So of course, seeing Working Washington here and Got Green, social, you know, what, what I see also is Para Los Niños, Casa Latina, the domestic workers, uh, Children's Alliance, the leader, national leaders of our dreamers, uh, state workers union, interfaith homeless advocates. I mean, it's the work of the, the people that are seated um, and, you know, in, in front of us um, that really allow us to be effective. For instance, tomorrow, I mean, there's a big conversation, you know, uh, around climate and are we going to do a carbon policy this year? And um, the, the proposals that are currently out there are not centered around uh, the people that are most impacted. Um, but we do have an organization called Front and Centered, and that coalition is one that is led by communities most impacted by environmental degradation and our pollution-based economy that you know, are um, in communication with me. And because I used to be part of that coalition, I mean, it allows us to be able to um, create pauses um, on legislation and make sure that we are actually um, doing things as well as we can from the very beginning. And so for those that can come, come to our office um, and be present in those and um, you know, stay connected um, with offices like mine that are really about you know, trying to make sure that we are not only um, you know that this is the one. This will be the last time that there's only two women of color in the state senate. You know that part of my goal and what I'm working towards is making sure that this time, because we've always had people and they've been amazing, um, but what we haven't been able to do is break the 
the culture of um, tokenism and also the, in, the, the institutional structure that makes it really hard um, for working moms um, um, to be able to do this work. Uh, and now that I have more colleagues that are men that want to be um, more present to their families that are also of my generation, I mean, that also is, you know, they see that um, the way that we've been doing things is actually diminishing themselves as the parents that they want to be as well. And so it's that collaboration of recognizing that giving me more space and making things better for me to be able to do the job actually makes it better for them too because they don't have to be just... Um, you know, the, the absent father, that they could actually be present too in their families. And so it's those kinds of collaborations that are across the aisle that are starting to make change and what allowed us to have the most progressive Family Medical Leave Act ever um, passed. Um, and it was because there's a lot of pressure coming from my <laughs> colleagues here. Uh, 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 Council Member Gonzalez was, you know, not uh, not, not well shy, liked, yeah. not shy, <laughs> and and because there was that pressure, and you know, it felt like it actually could happen. Um, we were able to put the pressure on some of our colleagues in Olympia to get the job done, uh, and that's what's going to take if we're going to take real progressive policy, you know, change on, on carbon, um, on the next wave of what um, benefits look like, um, so that we do um, have a safety net and a fabric that works for working families of today, um, that's what it takes. And so um, stay connected, join our list. Um, you know, we want to make sure that um, we're building the tools for organizing um, because that's what it takes for change. Thank you for that. So we're now going to open up Q&A. We started at 10 after, so we're actually going to continue through 10 after. We understand if some folks have to leave right at noon um, or have other commitments, but we did want to be respectful of folks' time and give as much time for question and answer as we could. So what I'm going to ask of the panel is um, I'm going to ask a question that I'm going to ask who, who amongst the panel wants to answer, and I'm going to try to have just one question for one panelist so we don't get into the thing where every panelist has to answer every question. Um, and hopefully everyone will have an opportunity um, to give some insight. So I'm going to start with this question. How do you continue to hold yourself accountable with those you represent as you find yourself in your role as a leader? Who wants to take that question? How do you continue to hold yourself accountable with those you represent as you find yourself in a role as a leader? I can do that one. Okay. Uh, so a couple ways. Um, one is, um, you know, I obviously have two kids. They're five and eight. They help me be pretty accountable to showing up <laughs> at night and doing our bedtime stories. Um, I think the other piece is, like, this is a short session, so one of the things that I'm doing is just choosing one thing a weekend that I'm doing. So this is my one thing this weekend in terms of, you know, grounding myself, to be accountable to the communities that I um, want to be representing um, and making sure that that's not done in like a mind way, but actually being physically with people. Um, and so last week it was um, helping the, swear in um, the new elected um, officials for um, the janitors and security officers union. Um, so that is SCIA Local 6. I was in Georgetown. Um, all their new leadership, you know, unions are run by our democracy. So they actually elected their 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 new executive council, they're um, the majority, if not almost all, are immigrants, um, refugees, people of color, and young women um, that are now um, the leadership of that council. And so I was um, honored to be able to swear them in. So those are the things. And then, of course, like 
um, yoga, meditation, um, and um, and really just trying to um, recall, kind of similar in that, uh, to something you had said earlier, Colleen, but just recall the people that um, are, are my um, beacons, my inspiration, um, people that um, bring me joy, and I, you know, think of them and I bring them to my mind um, because I can't always be physically present with, pe with people that I, that I want to be with, um, but if I can at least bring them into my mind while I'm washing the dishes, making coffee, you know, driving and doing that commute, um, those things really help me be uh, more accountable. Thank you for that. This has been a great conversation. But the challenge is we're all on board with what you're saying. <laughs> or at least the person who wrote this question is, yeah. which is lovely. <laughs> mm -hmm. How do we bring others who may not agree into this dialogue? Oh man, that's Let's a hard one. This one. <laughs> Mel, please. Um, I think it's it's about choicefulness, really. There are times when we're out tabling as got green that it's really about talking to the people who are like, yes, we agree with this, we're on board with this. You know, let's, let's get you involved, let's get you mobilized. So I think for whoever asked this question, you need to kind of decide where you're at in that. Are you trying to get like a mass amount of people involved in a campaign at your school or something like that? And see if really what you need to do is spend most of your time going for the yeses, the people who are excited. If you're working with your family or if you're working with just like a close group of friends, then, I mean, it is really, I think, about sitting down and taking the time to listen and assuring that you're gonna have that conversation over and over and over again. And that that conversation at times will be very heated and sometimes you'll have to step away from it and that sometimes you'll have some real clear agreements that you might wanna revisit or not revisit. But I really think you need to kind of decide strategically what you're doing with your time and for why are you trying to pull in people who may not necessarily agree with you. Can I, can I add to that? Please. Um, I know you don't want all of us to answer it's the question, but I'll just, <laughs> I just wanted to add a little footnote. I think when we're having conversations with people that we don't disagree with, we have to be okay with ultimately not agreeing. Mm -hmm. And sometimes that's not the goal. The goal isn't to convince that person to like ultimately see the world the way I see the world. Um, and I think that we are in a place in our um, political history and in our civic dialogue to the extent it still exists, that we, we, we feel like everybody has to see it the way we see it. And if you don't see it the way I see it, then you are somehow morally corrupt because you don't agree with whatever it is my view of the world is. And we, I think that's a hard thing for us today. Like we just have to be able to step away and say, you know what? Mary didn't agree with me today, and I need to reflect on why. Is it the way that I said my point of view, or is there some sort of underlying feeling that Mary is having that, that I just missed from a human perspective? So, so is it, is it that, that Mary is feeling like her, her existence is being threatened because she doesn't have access to the scholarship that my brown daughter does? Um, and, and why is that? Why is that creating anxiety for her? Why does she feel the way that she feels? And, and did I hear that? Did, did I truly hear that when I was talking to her? Or did I, super, did I do the thing that I hate other people do to me, which is superimpose my worldview and belief on the thing that I think you should care about? 
And obviously you should care the, about that thing more than the thing you care about. And so I think the greatest challenge for us in having conversations with people who don't always agree with us, and I have conversations with a lot of people who don't um, often agree with me on a variety of citywide issues, it, it's really about um, disarming yourself to be really truly prepared to try to um, listen to something deeper than what is just being said on the surface. And that's really hard, and I don't think any of us are, are perfect at it, but I think it's something that's worth, um, that listening exercise is certainly something that's worth striving towards, and it's um, something that I'm, I'm gonna be working really, really extra hard to do myself, to hold myself accountable um, over, the, over the next um, uh, year for sure, but hopefully beyond that. Can I add one more thing? Okay. <laughs> I'm sorry. I love it. This is the exception okay, question. This is yes. the exception question. You know, um, I appreciate both of my fellow panelists' comments, and I think, you know, we often, I often feel like um, in some ways I'm preaching to the choir, you know, when I get, when we get asked to speak at these kind of events because the same kind of folks are showing up. And But we have a, a whole community out there, especially around our homeless community, um, our the Not In My Backyard movement is significant. And it's something that we are going to have to learn and shift and change. And I think that the way that we're going to do that is through relationships. It's about knowing each other. Um, you know, the Seattle freeze is a real deal, and it's one of my um, one of my intentions as a citizen of this city is to be relational, have relationships with as many people as I can, inviting people into my home, changing people's perspectives about Native people, people of color. You know, what it's like to work with the homeless community. I I'm out there trying to do that all the time. And the other thing is storytelling. You may, I'm very intentional about telling the stories of the people that I'm in connection with. That is a traditional native value that I, that I hold, but I also believe it's effective in, in retelling the stories of um, some of our most amazing and vulnerable citizens in our city. So I think um, that we do have to, under, to be uh, intentional about how we um, help people understand what's going on with some of our most vulnerable citizens. Thank you for that. <clears throat> this question focuses on um, what white women can do to best support women of color who find themselves in elected public office. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Gee, who should answer that? <laughs> Probably a woman of color. <laughs> if only we had some women of color who were elected. <laughs> I can start. I can start. I can start. I was chuckling only because Colleen whispered, vote for us. <laughs> <laughs> and it's true. Uh, you should. But I think, um, you know, I think this is always an interesting question, um, question for me. And um, I, you know, I feel like I have a really I'm very lucky as a citywide elected official and to be able to sit up here and say that I was the first um, person of Latino descent to be elected citywide um, for uh, a citywide position in um, city government is, is pretty remarkable. But it's remarkable not just because it happened, but it's remarkable in the bad way that it didn't happen until 2015. Um, 
And that's really amazing to me to think about um, how I was a first in 2015 with regard to being the first Latino person to be elected to Seattle City Council in a citywide seat. And at one point, I was the only woman and the only person of color sitting in a citywide um, seat. Now I'm joined by uh, Mayor Durkin and Councilmember Mosqueda, and so we have like really exponentially changed who holds citywide um, office out of the four positions that are in those um, th those roles in city government. But I think you know because I have been very lucky to have broad base of support. I feel like I've been um, you know supported by a lot of different people. But I think that um, I think that there is an opportunity right now to um, have our white women allies. Um, uh, give us the space that we oftentimes need to be able to explore our own leadership as opposed to creating an environment where we might feel that it's our job to once again um, give to the mainstream dominant culture, which believe it or not, still exists in government. Um, I'm sure that's not hard for you to believe. Um, but it is, But it is. you know, it's a, it's a struggle to think about sort of what are the issues that we're struggling with in um, today's society, right? So today, right now, we're dealing with a, a, a daily barrage of assaults on immigrant and refugee people. We're dealing with the Me Too movement that has been... Um, essentially co-opted by a lot of white female faces in positions of power um, who have money in a lot of instances. Um, but it's nonetheless a conversation about sexual harassment that frankly has been having, um, been playing out within communities of color, particularly immigrant women communities for a long time. Just today on the way here, I was listening to a podcast that was put out by Reveal. If you don't listen to Reveal, you should, it's excellent. Um, but they had actually run an expose piece a year ago, a year ago, about sexual assault on women who work in janitorial roles in Southern California. Um, and so I think that it's important for us to recognize that those issues, immigrant issues, um, uh, sexual assault issues, uh, labor standard violations in other areas, not just uh, in that area. The attack on a woman's right to choose how to take care of her own body, um, how to have unfettered access to reproductive health. Those are all issues that are important to all of us as women, but the impact and the, and the negative impact and the disproportionate impact on women of color in particular is profound, but we are oftentimes not allowed to be the voice or the face of the movement. And we never will be until our white women allies allow us the space and, uh, and lift us up within that mainstream movement. For me, I, my, little, my dirty little confession is that uh, I, I continue to tell myself that I was not a feminist all the way through law school. Um, I graduated in 2005. And the reason I rejected the feminist movement is because it didn't look like me. It didn't sound like me, it didn't look like me, and I never believed it would be. Every single time I went to a women's law event, I felt so othered that it felt to me equivalent of walking into a room full of white men. It felt no different to me. 
And so, so my struggle with understanding what it means to me to be a feminist as a woman of color and a person of color first and foremost has been a constant personal struggle for me um, in my personal life and certainly in my professional life. And so for me, I think we need to, we need to um, acknowledge that we as women of color who want to be in leadership positions um, actually truly want that. And that that means that we, um, that we have to be given our space and sort of, uh, you, you know, the, the right to write our own destiny about what that's going to look like for us, as opposed to, okay, well, now you're here, and now we need you to act all the ways that we expect women to act. And when I hear that as a woman of color, that to me means I need you to act a little bit more white. So you need to dress the way I would expect a white elected official um, to dress, clearly not doing that today. <laughs> and, um, you know, I need you to sort of wear the makeup that way. I need you to sort of wear those shoes the way those women wear their shoes. And those things seem, um, you know, trivial, but it really does, it, it matters. It matters to who you are um, every day and who have you been, who you have been and how dominant culture can really influence um, how you effectuate your job every day. And so for me, I think it, it really is about, um, for white women, the same thing that, that white women allies ask of our white male allies, or I would say a lot of the same things that, that we would ask for in terms of being well-supported um, and, um, and championed, really, within a lot of these mainstream um, efforts. Thank you for that. So this will be our closing Q&A question before we go on to other actions for the day. I'm gonna start with the end of this message which says, you all are amazing, smiley face, because that's so true. <laughs> um, and so if one person could answer this question, in a time that we are in now, where do you continue to find your inspiration to get up and fight every day? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I'll jump in on this one. Um, I am very, very fortunate uh, to have a job where um, that is never in short supply, and that's because of the work that SJF funds across the region. We fund community organizing, and so we fund people who are on the front lines of every social justice issue that you can think of. And almost all of these organizations I would never have known about um, before I came to work at Social Justice Fund. I was an activist. I was really plugged in. I knew, um, you know, I knew organizations like God Green. I certainly knew organizations in my backyard and that were covered by my local media, so I think I was pretty well informed. Um, but I was also pretty depressed and hopeless, and this was pre-Trump. Um, <laughs> and uh, I didn't know that uh, some of the most courageous, inspiring um, leaders and movements um, are in tiny rural towns, right? Are in these areas that, for me, as a suburban and urban person, I had always been taught um, are, you know, backwards, redneck, blah, blah, blah. I mean, I'm not gonna go down the litany of offensive things that I had been taught about rural and small town communities, but turns out that's where some of the most amazing organizing is happening. No shade to urban organizers, um, including those in this room who I respect so much, but rural organizers are some of the best organizers because they have to be. Because they have, that, that person, that the sheriff that you're running your campaign against might be your son's little league coach. 
So you have to be really savvy in how you're organizing that campaign, right? The person that, you know, the, 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 the mayor that you're um, dealing with or the, or the business owner, maybe somebody that you see every week um, at the grocery store. So how are you going to speak your truth hold people accountable to a higher standard, and still be able to um, meet folks where they're at and engage them, like Colleen was saying, um, as relations. Um, and really, you know, I find that rural and small town organizers understand the interconnectedness in ways that I find so challenging mm -hmm. um, to me um, that set a higher standard for me of how I want to live in the world and also ultimately more effective, right? Because we all want to feel connected. That's something that is just in our DNA. So I'm inspired by all of these um, organizers that um, you do not read about in the news. If all I knew about what was going on in the world was what was in my Facebook feed, I would, um, I would be desperate um, for hope. But I know about those organizations. I know about the organizations like Got Green and Chief Seattle Club that are in my backyard um, and that are um, Reaching high, I think that's one of the things that really, really inspires me, is to see organizations, to see activists and organizers who aren't just, this is what I was saying earlier about the duty to win, who aren't just thinking about what can we get done today and tomorrow, but are thinking about, no, how do we imagine an entirely different kind of economy, right? That's what we need. In, this, in the moment when we are so under siege, under attack, we need desperately to be um, imagining something entirely different because we're being inundated with dystopia all the time. I have a 14 year old son and I think it's a really interesting thing, sorry for the tangent, about this generation of young people uh, who um, read dystopia all the time, right? What does that say? And um, are fluent in that language. Um, but where is their, uh, their vision and their idea of, um, you know, of a world that we have not seen that is so much better. Um, there's an organizer in Portland, an organizer and author named Valida Imarisha, who always says all social justice work is science fiction, because mm. when we do science fiction, when we do social justice work, we are working to create a world that none of us have ever seen. Mm. And so, if it seems hard to imagine sometimes, and if it seems unrealistic sometimes, and if it seems you know ridiculous sometimes. That's because we've never seen it. It's okay that it feels that way. But it gives me hope to remember that um, that, that imagination, that the impossibility of some of the things that we talk about, like an end to racism and an end to patriarchy, and like if those things feel impossible, that is not only okay, that's a sign that we're going in the right direction. Um, well, thank you for that. That was wonderful. I want to thank you all for spending your time with us. I want to thank the interpreters for being here. Thank you, awesome Seattle Channel crew, for making sure those who couldn't be here physically could still be here. And thank you to our panelists for sharing your time and vision and love with us today. Thank you again, everyone. And I just want to encourage everyone to look at your programs. There's programs at the door, too. There's a whole day of activities ahead of us. And I just wanted to say, as a woman, as a mother, as a citizen of the city, you all are so amazing. And I am so thankful for you to be here on a Sunday. Thank you. To all of you, too. Thank you so much.
Thanks for streaming this episode of Speakers Forum from KUOW 94.9 Seattle. This Women Power Seattle panel took place at Seattle City Hall on January 21st. Stay current with us by subscribing to our podcast. Tune in again soon.